HPPodcraft.com. About the middle of January 1920, there entered Ward's bearing an element of triumph, which he did not explain, and he was no more found at work upon the Hutchinson cipher. Instead, he inaugurated a dual policy of chemical research and record scanning, fitting up for the one a laboratory in the unused attic of the house, and for the latter, haunting all the sources of vital statistics in Providence. Local dealers in drugs and scientific supplies, later questioned, gave astonishingly queer and meaningless catalogs of the substances and instruments he purchased. But clerks at the State House, the City Hall, and the various libraries agree as to the definite object of his second interest. He was searching intensely and feverishly for the grave of Joseph Kerwin, from whose slate slab an older generation had so wisely blotted the name. Who is this curious young man? This Charles Dexter Ward. Well, he's the subject of the story we're covering again, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, very nice. And, sir, who are you? I am Chad Pfeiffer, and who are you? I am Christopher John Lackey. Well, hello, Christopher John. Welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Thank you. You mean hppodcraft.com. That is exactly what I mean. That's what I thought. This is our third part in the ongoing series on on The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, a novel by H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, right. And that was read by the wonderful, delightful, and charming Mr. Matt Foyer. What a treat. He's a treasure. Bless him. Just a quick note before we dig into the story. If you listen to the show on iTunes or you have a feed that you listen through, you should come in and, and check out our site occasionally because yeah. we've got forums on there and, and we've got uh, comments on the different shows and, and we need those. Those are part of the show because we, we make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> we do make a lot of mistakes. Pronunciation or um, we actually ask questions in the show that then get answered. Like last time we asked about what was Almusin, Metrotron and some people wrote in to say, hey, that's from the Old Testament. We also had said that HPL was not very popular in Japan. We were dead wrong about that. And yeah. some people uh, very quickly corrected us and gave recommendations for translations and, and that sort of thing. So yeah. we really appreciate the community, and we just want to make sure that they get attention for their contributions. Absolutely, well. yeah. I mean, we, we need you guys. So please you know, keep correcting us, and you know, we, we don't take any personal offense to it. Uh, if we, do, we do our best, and we need to you know, be corrected when we make mistakes. So thanks, yeah. guys. I kind of I like it. It's like being disciplined. <laughs> Dear God. We see that it's 1920. Ward's a senior in high school, but he's just phoning it in. You know, he, he and he, he's saying he doesn't really want to go to college because he's got his own studies that he's focused on. He's been studying uh, his recently discovered lost relative, Joseph Kerwin, which he didn't know right. even was even related to. But uh, he, he recently found out and also found out that after some kind of conspiracy that happened in the late 1700s that he has been erased from history. He found out where Kerwin's home used to be and he visited the home, found this portrait that looks exactly like him, yeah. which he has in his own library now. And also he found uh, a number of journals and materials that he's been studying. Now, he used to be very open about his interest in Joseph Kerwin, but since he's found these things, he's become much more secretive. Yep. And uh, where we find him in this section of the book, actually, he's starting to consult the occult section of certain libraries around mm-hmm. Providence and New England. I used to try and go to the, well, I used to go to the occult section of the library, sure. my public library at home all the time, but there weren't books as cool as what he finds. I mean, it was no. really just, you know, maybe some books about which which is witchcraft and, and right. the Time Life series. And then yeah, mysteries if of you the were unknown. lucky, some of those, uh, some of those uh, universal horror monster books. 
Those time life books were pretty pretty scary, man. Yeah, they were. They were. <laughs> also, as we learned from that that paragraph, he's starting to search for the grave of Joseph Kerwin. Yes. But as you said, he's kind of been blotted from history, so the location of that grave is difficult to find. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. So he stops looking for Kerwin's grave, and he starts looking for the grave of this guy, Naphtali Field. And uh, when Willett is going through all of Charles's materials later, he realizes it's because while it was impossible to find where Joseph was buried, mm-hmm. he did find some writing that said that 10 feet south and, f- and 5 feet west of Naphtali Field's, Field's, Field's grave. grave. Yes is where uh, Kerwin is. And so he starts looking for enough Dolly Field's grave, and that's how he's going to find Kerwin's grave. In the story, as, as it's set up at this point, Charles is in a metal institution. If you've listened to the parts one and two, you'll know this. But if you're just picking up on part three, uh, the, the story starts off with Charles in a mental institution. He's had some kind of breakdown. So we're getting all this information, past tense, from mostly from Dr. Willett and his trying to understand why Charles is lost his mind. We know from the beginning of the story that Charles escaped from that mental institution and what we're getting here is, is sort of what led up to his, his being placed there. Exactly. Around this time, 1920, when he's looking for that grave, the parents are finally like, you know, Dr. Willett, you gotta go have a talk with this guy, mm-hmm. with our son. They're worried about him and he's gotten very secretive. He needs a solitude. He's up in his sort of attic laboratory and doing all kinds of strange things and Willett comes and he has a talk with him and yeah. Charles seems very together. And and he answers his questions and talks about his pursuit of information. He just doesn't reveal what he's actually trying to get. But he says that, Charles says that this information is, is important. It's early scientific knowledge that is unlike anything that he's ever found before and that it's going to bring him to revelations that will even rival Einstein. At this point, Charles really takes that transition into the the mad scientist archetype. He's a lot like Jekyll and Hyde. I need my privacy. I need to work on these things. I can't tell anybody what it is because this this knowledge is of such supreme importance. Everybody just leave me alone so I can work on it. We also find out after this talk that it's not just Joseph Kerwin's grave he's looking for. It's It's his headstone, which has some sort of inscriptions on it. They struck his name from the headstone, but there's some kind of Da Vinci Code information on the headstone stone that's yeah, going to help some, him. Some symbols that are carved, and he, he's hoping that this information is going to help him decrypt some of the ciphers that he has. He lets Dr. Willett see a, a fragment of some of the things that he's researching, but he's very careful about what he shows them. And he shows them basically it's a list of, of shipping information, you know, like 100 pieces of shalloons and 50 gallons of kittles and all these other things. And then it starts <laughs> to get it starts to get good. And then right as it starts to get good, Charles just yanks it out of his hand. He tried to pick the most innocuous page of Joseph Kerwin's journal, which is just this list of things, although it says, I must hear more from Mr. H in Transylvania, though it's hard reaching him. And that Mr. H, I think, is Hutchinson, who was one of Joseph Kerwin's compatriots, somebody that he was working with on his mysterious necromantic experiments. Hutch. Yeah, Hutch is what we call him, but (laughs) Hutch is in Transylvania now. That's where he scrammed to, or he was then, at least. As Willett turns the page, he sees this reference about something breeding outside the spheres. Mm. It's going to draw one who is to come. That's the really, that's where it's getting good, like you said, and then Charles says, no, that's enough of that. You don't need to read anymore. You don't need anymore. Done. Out the door. Willett does examine the painting of Joseph Kerwin a little more at this piece, too, and he sees that he's got that slight scar pit in the brow above his right eye. Uh-huh. Yeah, make, yeah. make special note of that. But Dr. Willett goes towards parents and says, he's not crazy. His work might actually be important. So I guess we should be a little lenient with him at this Sure, point. of course. What Charles really wants to do is go to Europe. He wants to go yeah. to Europe now. But his parents, but his parents say, no way. you're 18 years old, dude. You're not going. You can't handle it. The time comes in April 1923 when his maternal grandfather dies and gives him a bunch of money. And then Charles says, hey, you know what? 
You can't stop me. I'm going. He spent three years in his occult ramblings, and then he's ready to go to Europe. He does travel a little in the U.S. while he's doing his occult ramblings before he leaves. It says once he went south to talk with a strange old mulatto who dwelt in a swamp and about whom a newspaper had printed a curious article. Oh. What's what's that a reference to? It, who knows, but it could be a reference to Castro in The Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. Is it the right time? I'm trying... No, well, Castro... He was still alive. He doesn't die at the end of Call of Cthulhu. But I guess Castro could yeah. stay around. So he goes to uh, Europe. He hits the British Museum. And they're not getting a lot of information about what he's doing out there, his parents. No. He just sends them letters that say, I live here. Goodbye. And that's <laughs> it. They're really only able to track his progress on the continent. He's in England for a while. Then he, he goes, goes to, to Paris. Paris. He yeah. goes to Prague, Czechoslovakia, Vienna. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up in Transylvania. The next card was from Klausenberg in Transylvania told of Ward's progress toward his destination. He was going to visit a Baron Ferenczi, whose estate lay in the mountains east of Rakus, and was to be addressed at Rakus in the care of that nobleman. Another card from Rakus a week later, saying that his host's carriage had met him and that he was leaving the village for the mountains, was his last message for a considerable time. Indeed, he did not reply to his parents' frequent letters until May when he wrote to discourage the plan of his mother for a meeting in London, Paris, or Rome during the summer when the elder wards were planning to travel in Europe. His researches, he said, were such that he could not leave his present quarters. While the situation of Baron Ferenczi's castle did not favor visits, it was on a crag in the dark wooded mountains, and the region was so shunned by country folk that normal people could not help feeling ill at ease. Moreover, the Baron was not a person likely to appeal to correct and conservative New England gentlefolk. His aspect and manners had idiosyncrasies, and his age was so great as to be disquieting. It would be better, Charles said, if his parents would wait for his return to Providence, which could scarcely be far distant. It's almost like Dracula. Yeah, it's exactly like Dracula. <laughs> He's living up there in, in his castle in Transylvania, and the townsfolk don't like him so much. He's so old that it's that if you saw him, it would freak you out. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, that guy, Baron Frenzy, is, uh, that, that's Hutchinson, yeah, that, one can assume. The characters in the story don't know that that's Hutchinson, but right. yeah, it's got to be. And also, he's a character in Brian Lumley's Necroscope series. I remember that. I did. Hutch, yeah. Hutch is uh, a character, or is it Baron Frenzy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I read all of those. Five, there's like five books. I know that. I think there's an extended sort of universe for that that goes past it. But there were. I think it's five books. I read all of them in high school. I don't remember them that well, but they they were great, pulpy reads, and uh, very much concerned with calling up people from the dead. If oh, you yeah. are interested in that kind of thing, I say check them out. They're they're really fun. There's lots of gore and sex, and you know it's a little different than Lovecraft stuff. But I know the Baron in there is is you know using the essential salts to call up folks from the dead and, oh, right. and yeah. has lots of um, incantations about Yogg-Sothoth and that sort of thing. It's pretty cool. I, I liked them a lot. So after his ramblings in Europe, Ward comes back in 26, back to New England. Back to Providence. And some of the alienists who later study his case say, all right, that's when he went crazy. That his trip to Europe is what uh, pushed him over the edge. Yeah, that was the beginning of his true madness. But will it again? I mean, and he always says, I don't, I don't think he was crazy yet. Right. <laughs> He was. Now, when he came back, he was definitely older. You know, he's visibly aged and hardened. Mm-hmm. But still, he, you know, he seemed normal. What elicited the notion of insanity at this period were the sounds heard at all hours from Ward's attic laboratory, in which he kept himself most of the time. There were chantings and repetitions, 
and thunderous declamations and uncanny rhythms. And although these sounds were always in Ward's own voice, there was something in the quality of that voice and in the accents of the formulae it pronounced, which could not but chill the blood of every hearer. It was noticed that Nig, the venerable and beloved black cat of the household, bristled and arched its back perceptibly when certain of the tones were heard. <laughs> the cat. And somebody had noted in last part of this series that maybe Lovecraft's racism is waning a bit. Yeah, because, I mean, the two characters uh, that live in Kerwin's house is an old black mm-hmm. couple, and he speaks very fondly of them and says that they're nice people and good people. And Yeah, and he shortened the name of the cat. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Chad? Well, from Rats on the Walls, we know that, that Lovecraft <laughs> had a cat with had a, a name like Nige or, or Nig or however you want to pronounce yeah. this, mm-hmm. but it was, a, it was a little little longer than that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe as we see the cat's name getting shortened, that is also the, the waning of Lovecraft's racism. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I went to the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Film Festival here oh, in Los right. Angeles yeah, last weekend. It, it was pretty fun. The uh, festival organizer, Aaron Vanek, had read a, and I, I won't read it here, but I would say if anybody wants to know, I mean, we don't like to get into politics or any of that sort of stuff on the show, but if anybody wants to know how Lovecraft felt about the Republicans, do a quick Google search or we'll, we'll post a link. There's a great quote in there <laughs> that really applies to the, the grand old party of today. Uh, I'd say it's we'll put a link up to it on the show notes, but it was uh, I'm always learning new things about Lovecraft. And that's what's great about going to a festival like that, because you just can always glean something new. Mm-hmm. Um, sticking with the story here, uh, there's smells coming out of yeah. the, the attic laboratory that make people kind of imagine crazy things when they smell them. Yeah. And when Will- Willett visits again, you know, he sees that Charles is older when he's up there in his uh, library. He sees there's strange symbols on the chalkboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's strange figures and wax that he's acquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1927, one night uh, in January, about midnight, there's a wind and a, and a storm, and it seems like the house has almost been struck by lightning. Yeah, something this crazy huge now. crash. It's soon over. It's very strange, and when the family goes up to talk to Charles about it, because they're afraid that it might have hit the house and wrecked the top level, yeah. he says, no, no, it's nothing, don't worry about it, but he seems very pleased, as if he's had some kind of breakthrough. Uh-huh. Right around that time, he starts very excitedly asking, when is the spring thaw going to come? <laughs> yeah, he wants to know about the weather. In the night, he comes home with a long box. <laughs> this is the thing about the story. I mean, every time I read this, it seems so obvious to me what's going on. Yeah. And I, I, it's really hard to uh, suspend disbelief when I'm reading it. And I try mm. to get in the head of the characters and thinking, of course, they're not from a world where these things are possible. You know, like mm. they they don't think about people robbing graves and doing magic and trying to summon up dead people and you know it it doesn't even occur to them that these things happen or even yeah. possible in my i always think that mrs ward is just hoping against hope that her son's just up there masturbating <laughs> that's what all the chanting and screaming is about you know that's whatever he's getting shipped to him he's just embarrassed about what's going on with his own body and so she's being polite and, and trying not to invade his, his privacy that's um i didn't get that. <laughs> i didn't get that from that's... there but uh interesting interesting perspective well, that's how I reconcile. Yeah, sure, sure. The, the paper comes the next day after he receives that long box, and he accidentally loses a section of the paper. Yes, and uh, the <laughs> in the section of the paper, there's a there's a headline that reads "Nocturnal Digger Surprise in North Burial Ground." Yeah, apparently <laughs> some diggers, <laughs> some guys with a truck and a box in the back of the truck got surprised. Right, uh-huh. the night watchman. Yeah, he catches them, and uh, they they hightail it out of there. Now, where they were digging wasn't actually a grave. There yeah. was there's 
there was no headstone there. I mean, no. they think that what these guys were bootleggers trying to hide their stash. Yeah, because there was a big empty hole, but that was it. And there was no gravestone, so obviously it must have been uh, bootleggers hiding booze. Yeah, but for some reason, Charles doesn't really want people reading that article. <laughs> so he loses it from the paper. And Willett later, when he's asking questions, they say, oh, I do remember that he damaged part of the paper. And he, he goes and... Let me see that part that he lost. Oh, okay. Uh, one night, some magic gibberish Ward starts speaking over and over. His, uh-huh. his family hears from him. It's in the fi- on the 15th of April. Yeah. So there's something especially strange going on up there. Fumes are pouring out of the door. Some experts tell Dr. Willett later that it has a very close analog to the writings of Eliphas Levi, who we talked about in the last episode, mm-hmm. that sort of mystic who created the Baphomet mid-19th century author. The chanting is of a number of, as uh, some of our listeners pointed out, uh, Kabbalah names just sort of scattered together. Mm -hmm. And it says, This had been going on for two hours without change or intermission, when over all the neighborhood a pandemoniac howling of dogs set in. The extent of this howling can be judged from the space it received in the papers the next day, but to those in the Ward household, it was overshadowed by the odor which instantly followed it. A hideous, old, pervasive odor, which none of them had ever smelled before or have ever smelled since. In the midst of this mephitic flood, there came a very perceptible flash, like that of lightning, which would have been blinding and impressive, but for the daylight around. And then was heard the voice that no listener can ever forget because of its thunderous remoteness, its incredible depth, and its eldritch dissimilarity to Charles Ward's voice. It shook the house and was clearly heard by at least two neighbors above the howling of the dogs. Mrs. Ward, who'd been listening in despair outside her son's locked laboratory, shivered as she recognized its hellish import. For Charles had told her of its evil fame in dark books, and of the manner in which it had thundered, according to the Fenner letters, above the doomed Patuxet farmhouse on the night of Joseph Kerwin's annihilation. There was no mistaking that nightmare phrase. For Charles had described it too vividly in the old days when he had talked frankly of his Kerwin investigations. And yet it was only this fragment of an archaic and forgotten language. Dies, bies, drushet, boene, doesef, duvima, enitemos. Something really big happens, obviously. Uh, and this is sort of where things change. A big event has transpired uh, here. Well, I'm, I don't know how we should discuss the story, if we should discuss it as as the story progresses or if we should be doing this as... Because this is where he brings up Kerwin. Yeah, I mean, there's as you said, it's so obvious. There's no reason for us to pretend that we're as uh, naive as the rest of the people in the story. <laughs> there's a scream that turns into some laughter after he does that incantation. Yeah. Mrs. Ward is, you know, politely knocks at the door and hears two screams from two different people within the door. And uh, and because of that, she faints. When Mr. Ward gets home, he finds her up there stretched yeah, just, out and he hears some low conversation happening within the room. And they're two, two separate voices. One voice, uh, obviously Charles, and the other, it's... When they talk about it, they talk about it as if it's Charles trying to change his voice. Like he's speaking in deeper, hollower tone. And obviously, they're, they're, it's two different people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and, and when uh, right when he revives Mrs. Ward, or, or within the doors, they hear Mrs. Ward cry outside, and then that's when he hears "shh, right" <laughs> from inside, meaning that you know Charles is saying, "Let's write so that people don't hear two people talking in here." Yes. Over dinner that night, they decide this this has got to stop. Mr. Ward puts his foot down, and he goes up, and he's like, he just says, "We can't have this going on in our house. Your your mother is upset. You're freaking her out. 
you need to stop saying your words and making your explosions and stinking up the joint with your crappy chemicals. This is stopping. I'm putting my foot down. I'm the pops. And the Charles is, he says, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. This is, you know, your place. I'm, I'm done with all this stuff. I'm just going to do some kind of book research now. You know, that's what I'm going to be into. I'm not going to be doing these things anymore. I'm sorry. Right. Which sort of silences Mr. Ward. It's that yeah. thing where you really, you're really mad at somebody and you come after them and they go, I agree with everything you're saying. I, you know, I'm being weird and I shouldn't do that. And then you're totally, <laughs> I don't know what to do now. I was expecting a fight. <laughs> and uh, he kind of goes, well, okay, that's it. And, you know, when he's walking, you know, walks away and leaves it be. But unfortunately, poor old Nick, dead. Cat died. Cat died right when that happened. And and his, uh, what did it say? It said he was found with staring eyes and fear-distorted mouth. Oof. Now, wait, how do you know? How do you know a cat has a fear-distorted mouth? <laughs> well, I what does know. that look like? Well, this book research that Charles is now doing is about things that he should already know. You know, he clears his library up of all of these modern books about history and, and that sort of thing. He's bringing them up to the attic. And also, after that night, the painting of Kerwin crumbles to dust. On the north wall rose still the ancient carved overmantel from the house in Olney Court. But to the cracked and precariously restored oils of the large Kerwin portrait, disaster had come. Time and unequal heating had done their work at last. And at some time since the room's last cleaning, the worst had happened. Peeling clear of the wood, curling tighter and tighter, and finally crumpling into small bits with what must have been malignly silent suddenness. The portrait of Joseph Kerwin had resigned forever its staring surveillance of the youth it so strangely resembled, and now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine bluish-gray dust. So the, it's gone. And what's extra strange about it is Dr. Willett says, oh, hey, too bad about that painting. And Charles is like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he finds it kind of amusing, actually. Yeah. That reminded me, we talked about Oscar Wilde in the in the last uh, podcast, uh-huh. a bit of the picture of Dorian Gray, where the painting of Kerwin is somehow related to him in some mystical way. And when he comes up, mm-hmm. when he is born again, the painting crumbles. Mm-hmm. And that brings us into the fourth section of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. A mutation and a madness. Things start to change for Charles. He is doing more book research. There's less laboratory research. Mm -hmm. And he's eating a lot more. Almost enough for two people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And one one of which has a very ravenous appetite. People are seeing that he's going to Kerwin's old house in Only Court and hanging around in the cellar of that house a lot. Yeah. Also looking along the riverbank of the Pawtuxet or something. And in, in May, things start up again. And he starts doing his rituals and doing his wackiness and the voices. And then, of course, uh, Mr. Ward comes in and says, look, we had to talk about this. You said you wouldn't do it anymore. And then he says, you know what? I'm terribly sorry. I'm going to stop doing it. Don't worry about it. I'm moving on. Yeah. One of those conversations that they could hear through the laboratory door, Charles talking to himself. Mrs. Ward listens at the door and she hears the words, must have it read for three months. Must be read for um, three months? And, you know, the butler quits around this time, too. Who is a worthy Yorkshireman. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Hey. Yeah. One night, Charles appears with a suitcase. Yeah. The, something in Charles's gaze is really unholy, and it freaks the butler out. So he, he says the next day, Mrs. Ward, I can't be in your service anymore. Your kid's freaking me out. And he quits. And, uh, yeah, he'd been working for years. And Mrs. Ward doesn't t- actually take a lot of stock in what the butler says, because she thought she heard Charles up in his quarters all night sobbing. Yeah. Quietly. <laughs> He's up there crying. What's he doing? Yeah. 
What is he's, going uh, on? He's probably crying because he's unable to deliver the paper to his folks without losing sections of it, <laughs> which is what he does again the next day. When Willett goes back to see what it was he lost, it's a couple of very um, telling articles, one of which is more cemetery delving. Yeah, the, the, the big important part of this is the grave of Ezra Whedon, born in 1740, died 1824. His body has been taken, the headstone splintered. That's pretty fishy. Now, if we remember Ezra Whedon, was the mastermind behind the whole operation that got Kerwin busted. I know. It says in the article, actually, Ezra was involved in some very peculiar circumstances shortly before the revolution. It's almost as if the author of this uh, article for the paper has read the rest of the story like we have. (laughs) There's a lot of very interesting details in that article. Another thing that was heard, uh, or a separate article reports on noisy dogs in Pawtuxet who were howling as a result of what sounded like the shrieks of a man in mortal terror and agony. <laughs> because there was a very sharp and brief thunderstorm. Right. Somewhere right. focused along the riverbank. How can they tell that? You know, that a riverbank, I guess they just have really good reporters. In, in yeah, these reporters are excellent. <laughs> in fact, it's too bad that they didn't call in some of these reporters. They would have solved this crime immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't, and apparently this is, that's actually, I didn't remember that from my first read of the story, but Kerwin goes out and gets revenge on the guy. Yeah. Pretty nasty. I mean, yeah. he, call, he gets his body, calls him up again, and then tortures him, I would assume. I'm, I'm guessing that's what he does to him, which is pretty heinous. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, Ezra went to his grave, and on his deathbed, he's like, thank God I took care of Joseph Kerwin so that everybody can live in peace, and then <sighs> he dies. Next thing he knows, ouch! What's going on? <laughs> Where am I? Ouch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. Well, on top of that, Charles has been looking more and more haggard and, and hunted. And hunted. Haggard and hunted is what, what, they, what he says specifically. So, yeah, I love hunted. Just worried, stressed out. Uh, something, mm-hmm. Something's going on. And there's also been some reported cases of vampirism. This is that <laughs> wave of vampirism. Somebody's creeping in through open windows. and Or attacking people out on the streets. A live, leaping monster with burning eyes who's fastening his teeth on the throat or upper arm and feasting on, on people. That is so creepy, man. Yeah. It's the throat <laughs> and upper arm. He just gets a hold wherever he, he can and oh, oh mm-hmm. it's ghastly. Gobbles it up. Well, he's sort of a zombie. He kind of is a, a zombie or a ghoul. Well, Dr. Willett is sure that Charles Ward is innocent of the wave of vampirism. He doesn't exactly say why he's sure of it. Yeah. Other than to say that his increasing pallor, if anything, should let you know that he's not really drinking blood. He's looking anemic and really bad. Yeah. Around that time. <laughs> and everything's going kind of downhill here. And um, Mrs. Ward is just not holding it together. You know, she's she's really freaking out. And so Willett sends her off to Atlantic City for an indefinite recuperative sojourn. So she's going to go uh, have a vacation and sit in front of some slot machines and <laughs> have, a, have a few drinks and well, why not? try and get her head together. Willett says only send her cheering letters. Don't don't write about the wave of vampirism. Yeah. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> But not, not long after his mom takes off, Charles buys, or at least tries to buy, a bungalow in Patuxic. And he, I think it's just a concrete little bungalow. Why somebody would want it, I'm not sure. But in the middle he of pays an, Yeah, he pays a lot of money to get it. Making good on his promise to his father, I'll take my research as somewhere less offensive. It says, To the Patuxet bungalow, Charles transferred all the secrecy with which he had surrounded his attic realm, save that he now appeared to have two sharers of his mysteries. A villainous-looking Portuguese half-caste from the South Main Street waterfront who acted as a servant. And a thin, scholarly stranger with dark glasses and a stubbly, full beard of dyed aspect, whose status was evidently that of a colleague. 
Neighbors vainly tried to engage these odd persons in conversation. The mulatto Gomez spoke very little English, and the bearded man who gave his name as Dr. Allen voluntarily followed his example. Ward himself tried to be more affable, but succeeded only in provoking curiosity with his rambling accounts of chemical research. Before long, queer tales began to circulate regarding the all-night burning of lights. And somewhat later, after this burning had suddenly ceased, there rose still queerer tales of disproportionate orders of meat from the butchers, and of the muffled shouting, declamation, rhythmic chanting, and screaming supposed to come from some very deep cellar below the place. Most distinctly, the new and strange household was bitterly disliked by the honest bourgeoisie of the vicinity, and it is not remarkable that dark hints were advanced, connecting the hated establishment with the current epidemic of vampiristic attacks and murders, especially since the radius of that plague seemed now confined wholly to Patuxet and the adjacent streets of Edgewood. All the citizens are like, uh, I just hope that guy's masturbating out there. <laughs> yeah, no, Charles is not alone anymore. He's got he's got some henchmen. He's got this guy called yeah. Dr. Allen who has a dyed beard mm-hmm. and uh, some foreign dude. Yeah, neither of whom really want to speak. Yeah, they're both uh, pretty pretty quiet dudes. Around then, another really weird thing happens. There's a shipment coming to Charles, and these thieves, not knowing who it's going to or anything, thinking it might be some liquor, mm-hmm. they hijack it and try to steal what's in the boxes. But they find out <laughs> that there's no liquor in there, and there's just some really disturbing things. And they just sort of ditch the... They, they take all that stuff, and they just ditch it out in the woods. Now, the police yeah. know that this guy delivering this you know he had was hijacked but they don't know what happened to the stuff and this drunk guy uh, gets kind of pressured into telling him where you know where they got rid of the stuff and then they go find the stuff and it's actually a bunch of bodies i did not remember this from reading the story earlier either it these remains are not just any remains there's some very prominent historical figures in here it's so shocking they have to wire washington and let them know the national a national treasure has been unearthed here and, you know, it would be good for people not to find out what's going on. Yeah. So I wonder who was it? Who was it? Was it Lincoln? I think it's Ben Franklin, actually, because later in the story, when we could talk about it when we get to it, uh-huh. they talk about must have the remains of BF. <laughs> so I'm not kidding. I so I think. Together. No, I yeah. didn't get that. They were, tr- they were trying to resurrect Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, yeah. That's... To get his knowledge of, to get his knowledge of uh, I don't know, Lightning the stove bolts. and the Gulf Stream and, and electricity. <laughs> I mean, I love Ben Franklin. He's a really smart guy. When I, when I figured that out, I got really mad at Kerwin. Like, how dare you? <laughs> I love Ben Franklin. <laughs> you son of a bitch. I never, I just assumed it was some people in history and he was leaving it intentionally. But when he talks about the remains of BF, I bet bet you're right. It is probably Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? That's great. That makes him even more villainous. That's really villainous because I just imagine him having, you know, Ben Franklin's all naked and tied to a chair, you know. Oh, no. Tell me about the mysteries of France, French women. You know, I don't know what he... Did you really keep to that schedule you laid out for yourself in your autobiography? Tell me, I must know. So, so anyway, um, the cops, of course, <laughs> come to uh, Charles and they say, yeah, why were, why was this addressed to you? What's going on? And he said, oh, well, I ordered this stuff overseas and, um, you know, they, I just, I'm doing medical research. I just, I thought I was getting anatomical specimens. So 
you know, I don't. Yeah, I didn't know what the identity of these things were going to. Yeah, be. nobody's nobody told me anything like that. And then, of course, this this guy, this Doctor Allen, steps in and is like, "Yeah, he didn't know." And he was very convincing. And and the cops just kind of go, "Well, all right, I guess you know, no harm, no foul." Yeah. <laughs> the guy with the beard said said so, so it must be true. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. I just ordered some books from Amazon. How did I know the Declaration of Independence was going to show up? <laughs> I couldn't have known that. I couldn't have known. Could have. Blame the sh- blame the guys in shipping. Yeah, it's definitely a shipping mistake. They had some anatomical examples, and then they had Ben Franklin, and they just got confused, and they sent the wrong <laughs> one. That's not my fault. <laughs> oh, golly. Well, anyway. Now, things, things really take a turn here. February 9th, 1928, Dr. Willett receives a letter from Charles Dexter Ward from... Uh, Providence, Rhode Island, February 8th, 1928, and it it says, Dear Dr. Willett, I feel that at last the time has come for me to make the disclosures which I have so long promised you and for which you have pressed me so often. The patience you have shown in waiting and the confidence you've shown in my mind and integrity are things I shall never cease to appreciate. And now that I am ready to speak, I must own with humiliation that no triumph such as I dreamed of can ever be mine. Instead of triumph, I have found terror. And my talk with you will not be a boast of victory, but a plea for help and advice in saving both myself and the world from a horror beyond all human conception or calculation. You recall what those Fenner letters said of the old raiding party at Patuxet. That must all be done again and quickly. Upon us depends more than can be put into words. All civilization, all natural law, perhaps even the fate of the solar system and the universe. I have brought to light a monstrous abnormality, but I did it for the sake of knowledge. Now for the sake of all life and nature, you must help me thrust it back into the dark again. I have left that Patuxet place forever, and we must extirpate everything existing there, alive or dead. I shall not go there again. And you must not believe it if you ever hear that I am there. I will tell you why I say this when I see you. I have come home for good and wish you would call on me at the very first moment that you can spare five or six hours continuously to hear what I have to say. It will take that long. And believe me when I tell you that you never had a more genuine professional duty than this. My life and reason are the very least things which hang in the balance. I dare not tell my father for he could not grasp the whole thing. But I have told him of my danger, and he has four men from a detective agency watching the house. I don't know how much good they can do, for they have against them forces which even you could scarcely envisage or acknowledge. So come quickly if you wish to see me alive and hear how you may help to save the cosmos from stark hell. Any time will do. I shall not be out of the house. Don't telephone ahead, for there is no telling who or what may try to intercept you. And let us pray to whatever gods there be, that nothing may prevent this meeting. In utmost gravity and desperation, Charles Dexter Ward. P.S. Shoot Dr. Allen on sight and dissolve his body in acid. Don't burn it. And that's a postscript, by the way. <laughs> that's just, yeah. oh, a little side fact. If you see Dr. Allen, murder him and dissolve his body in acid. Don't burn it. Yeah. Cause, cause that, Don't burn course, it, which is, um, that's probably what you would have done. You would have burned his body after murdering this man that you've never met. But that's a bad <laughs> idea. You have to dissolve him in acid. <laughs> 
And Dr. Willett uh, receives this note about 10.30 a.m. and says, well, I've got some patients to see, but around 4 o'clock I'll get over there and see what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that in the next episode. It's a very urgent, urgent thing that Charles needs from him. And, you know, it's... I, we're, we're goofing around to make a little fun of this, but it, I feel really bad for Charles at this point in the yeah. story. I mean, it, it really is a tragedy in line with most mad scientist stories. He was just following a thirst for knowledge, what you know, most everybody does. They want to know things. They want to understand the world around them. You know, he's not yeah. doing anything that wrong, but bit by bit, he you know kept stepping across that line until finally he realized he was way, way over it. Now he's trying to run back, but it looks like it's going to be a little too late. And there's some some really cool pieces coming up, and we're we're excited to get to them in the next episode. Yeah. But for now, that's all we have. Well, I want to th- I want to thank uh, again Matt Foyer for being such an awesome reader. Thank you so much for doing this for us. And uh, yeah. you know, I'm looking forward to seeing your performance in The Whisperer in Darkness. All right, it should be due out uh, in a month or two, I believe. I saw a, a scene from that at the film festival, and it looked amazing. I'm really excited to see it. Pretty it looks, good. That's all we've got for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.